The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. And we'll begin in verse 12 and end in chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, hear the words of our Lord. Now that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you, are, you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as em- enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved, the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? It's good to be with you all, like always. Um, If you didn't get a chance to, uh, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Philippians 3. Uh, By the end of this sermon, we're going to be already in the last chapter of the book of Philippians, which is crazy to me. I feel like we started it like 20 seconds ago. Let's pray. God, we've already sung about how good and glorious and grand you are. And Lord, I pray that as we move now into the time of preaching, that that can just be the theme that carries on. That you are good, you are grand, and you are gracious to your people. And we recognize that this morning as we come together as, as a bunch of broken people who are carrying baggage, who don't have it figured out. May we find comfort in Paul's words here of saying, though I haven't already obtained this, but also find the comfort to push on because Christ has made us his own. We recognize our unworthiness this morning and we recognize your worthiness. May this morning be about you. Not about us. Lord, and I also just want to pray as we are on the eve of an election. That we as a church can put our confidence in you. Though both parties will surely fail us on Tuesday and forevermore, you will not. We recognize the hope of our country the hope of Kansas City, the hope of our church, and the hope of us as individuals is only and completely found in you. So be with us this morning as we learn what it means to shed confidence in the flesh 
and put confidence in you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's jump right into it. Verse 12, chapter 3. If you're not there, you've had two chances by now, get on it. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Okay, first thing we need to know as good readers, what does he mean when he says this? Not that I have already obtained this or have made it or am perfect. All right, so what is the this he's referring to? Well, if you think back to last week's message, Glenn uh, gave, gave an incredible sermon on the passage last week. If you missed it, be sure to go back and listen to it. But remember, in, last, in the last passage that we preached last week, Paul gave us his resume, right? His, his resume of sorts. He was saying, there's no reason to boast in what we've done, but if we were to boast, let me show you how much better mine would be than yours, right? That's what he says. And then he goes on to list the things that, that he could have boasting in. Circumcised on the eighth day, He's of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he's a Pharisee. As to zeal, he's a persecutor of the church. This is the craziest one to me. As to righteousness under the law, he's blameless. Right. So he gives us his resume, and he says, but all of that, and the economy of God is rubbish. It means nothing. All the good works that I have piled up that are in my name are nothing compared to the good works that Jesus has done. Right, and I love what Glenn said last week. He, he, he used this analogy, which I never do, so I always just borrow other people's. <clears throat> he used this analogy of, of kind of adding it up. Right, it's as if in last week's passage, Paul is adding up all of the good works that he's done. Right, and not only does he, he doesn't just come to the conclusion that they didn't help him. He actually came to the conclusion that they hurt him. That his good works put him in the loss. Right, not just neutral with God, in the loss. Before God, they are rubbish. Okay, and he says, so that's what I'm giving away. He says, I, I forsake all things, because all things are worth forsaking for the sake of knowing Christ. And then he says this, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That is the this. What Paul is after is sharing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Simply put, he's after what we call the gospel. He says he wants to share in the suffering of Christ. He, Paul, wants to die to himself just the way Christ died to himself. He wants to suffer as Christ suffered, which we know in the present moment he writes this letter from a, from a jail cell. He wants to be sent as Christ was sent. He wants to be in Christ in his death so that he can be in Christ in his resurrection. In some, Paul wants Christ. What Paul is after is nothing other than the gospel. He wants to make the gospel his own. He wants to own the life, death, and resurrection. Read verse 10 just one more time. This is going to be the backbone. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the foundation of our passage this morning. So that's what Paul's after. <clears throat> so he says, I've not already obtained this, and I'm not already perfect. He's saying that, 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 that completely suffering in, in, the, in the suffering of Jesus 
completely dying in the death of Jesus and completely being resurrected in the resurrection of Jesus are not things that he's obtained yet. But he's pushing on. And he emphasizes multiple times in our text today that he hasn't made it, that he's not there. Right? He is not perfect. Neither are you. Take comfort. Paul, who wrote most of our New Testament, is wicked and broken just like you. So he emphasizes that multiple times. Yeah, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just, uh, he doesn't just kind of marinate in his, his shortcomings or his wickedness, but he says that he's going to press on. So keep reading with me. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And, and, and when I read this, there is just something seriously freeing to me about this particular sentence it is it's comforting to my soul that Paul's motivation for pressing on into Christ is the gospel. That's what he says. I press on to make him my own because he has made me his own. Now, you've probably heard many reasons to press on and make Christ your own, right? Especially if you grew up in the church. If you grew up in the church, you're not new to people telling you you need to be like Christ. Right? And, and I didn't grow up in the church. Right? To, to my knowledge, I'm the first believer in my family. And, and I still have heard countless reasons why I, even though I was a late convert, ha- should be like Christ. And can I just be frank with you? Most of them are bogus. Here are some of the reasons, just a few of them. You need to change the way you are living because you know that God sees what you're doing, right? Or something like, you know hell awaits those who don't make Christ their own. Or, hey Ronnie, if you want to shed that guilt and that shame that you're feeling, the only way you can do it is if you make yourself like Christ. Or your life would be so much better if you would just accept and make yourself like Christ. While there are actually truths in each one of those statements that I just said, I really do believe that. Each of these statements is not satisfying to my soul the way that Paul's statement is. These statements rely on manipulation, fear, guilt, and even a selfishness of wanting to make sure my life is a bit better. That's not what Paul is doing. He uses Christ himself. He uses the gospel. I press on to make Christ my own. Why? Because he's made me his own. Paul is relying on the power of the gospel to be enough to propel us to live in a way that we're pushing into Christ. So we must then, in every area of our lives, not because of fear or manipulation or shame or guilt, but because we are Christ's own, push into Christ with all that we have and all that we are. Everything pushing into Christ, making him your own because he's done the cosmic work of making you his own. Every nook and cranny of your life, the gospel engulfs. Every one of them. And just as a side note, (coughs) because I know my church and, and I'm convinced that the best type of preaching happens when the preacher knows the first name and the stories of those who are listening. I believe that. I believe that the itinerant preaching is not nearly as beneficial 
or effective as a, as a pastor staying at the same church for 50 years, laboring with the same people over and over and over. That's glorious to me. Because what happens is you start to know people, and as you're writing sermons, they're not just theoretical problems, but they're first names and faces. And that happens to me and to Hedger. I want you to know, I've been given advice as a young preacher to to not think about particular people in my congregation as I'm writing, and to that I say hogwash. I'm preaching for a particular people, you. I want to know your pain. I want the text to deal with your struggle. And here's what I know. I know that many of us are going to have more problem not with the pressing into Christ, but the part where it says that he has made us his own. In this room, there are handfuls, many people, who don't feel that way about themselves, that Christ hasn't made them his own. There's doubting of salvation in this room, and I know it. So hear me. If you have put your faith in the perfect life, the atoning death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are his. He has you. Completely has you. So to all of us, those who are confident in our faith, those who are, uh, are, are shy in our faith, those who even doubt it, press on. Press on to make Christ our own because he has already made you his own. Let's keep going. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul again reminds us that he has not already obtained this perfection. Right? He says, but one thing I do, <coughs> forgetting what lies behind and straining forward what lies ahead. So there's a debate to what lies behind in this particular sentence means. What does it mean for Paul to forget what lies behind? What is behind? Right? So some interpreters of the text are going to say that it's his sin. Right? Because we know that Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, right? And he thinks he's actually, that's not some like faux humility. He actually thinks he's the chief of sinners because he was persecuting the church. Right? And to him, that's the worst conceivable thing that he could have been doing, is killing the body of Christ. Right? So when, when, when Paul has his theophany, and when God speaks to Paul on the road to Damascus, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Paul was killing Christians, Paul realizes in that moment, by destroying the lives of Christians, he's destroying the body of Christ, and therefore thinks he's the chief of sinners. So is that what he's leaving behind? He forgets that all of his sin... All of the baggage, all of the wickedness and depravity that lies behind him, is he forgetting that and now striving on towards looking like Christ? I don't know. The other option is uh, his righteousness, right? Which would make sense coming off of the last passage we just had where he gave the list of all the reasons that he should have reason to boast in what he's done, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, asked the law blameless, asked to zeal, a persecutor of the church, so he just gave us all of his good works, and they're impressive. right? If you, if you don't know the importance of each thing that he listed, I would, I would make a suggestion. Just read the Old Testament more. It will help you make sense of why he's bragging about these, these, these realities. So is that what lies behind? He's saying, forget what I've done in my own good. I'm going on to what Jesus has done. 
The other option, the third option, is that he's actually referring to the progress that he's made as a Christian, as a regenerate, born-again believer. In so much as saying, man, forget my contentment. I need to continue pressing on. I know I've made it far, and I've written letters, and I've done this, and I've planted churches, but forget all of that. I'm pressing on towards Jesus. But those are the three options. And to my estimation, there is not a reason for thinking that one of them is better than the other two. And regardless of whatever one you're convinced of, the point still stands. Move forward towards Jesus. All things, whether our guilt and shame in the past of our sin or our propensity to rely on our self-justification, our own righteousness, what our hands can do, or our contentment in where the Lord has brought us so far. Whether it's any of those three, they must all be laid behind, left behind, as we push forward and move towards Christ. So I love Paul's emphasis then on the worthiness of Christ here. Because whatever, whichever one of those three you think it is, what he's saying is those things are worthless compared to the worth of Jesus. So forget them and go forward. Right? And Paul's emphasis of the worthiness of Christ is nothing other than the New Testament's emphasis of the worthiness of Christ, which is none other than the Bible's emphasis on the worthiness of Christ. Remember, we just got out of the book of Hebrews, right? We spent like 85 years in the book of Hebrews. And don't forget, even though we're not in it every week anymore, don't forget what it said. Remember the call to not die on the bank of the promised land. Remember that. Or the severity that whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, that he, he came down with on his readers. Don't be like the Israelites who were this close to glory and died on the bank of the promised land for not having faith. But with one another, arm in arm, link up and make each other get into the promised land. Don't die out here. Go to Jesus. As the author of Hebrews is saying. Forsake what's behind and move forward. What's behind? What's back there for you? Look forward. Look forward. Look forward to Jesus. There's nothing back there for you. Go into the promised land. Paul's picking up on this type of rhetoric. Whatever's back there, forsake it. All is rubbish compared to the worth of knowing Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Whatever's back there, sin, shame, guilt, righteousness, obedience, and faith, or contentment in where the Lord's brought you, kill it. Go forward. Let's keep reading. Verse 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. I love this, this verse. And if, any, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul moves on to tell the Philippian church uh, what the mindset of maturity looks like. Right now, I love the way that he defines maturity. Because, because we have a propensity to define maturity, um, especially in the things that we're gifted at. Right? So, so we see the things that we're good at and we're, we're tempted to define maturity that way. So it's, it's no surprise to anyone who knows me that I love theology. Or I do. Like, it gets me out of bed in the morning. I want to read theology. I want to think about God. I want to make sure the things that I believe are accurate. And therefore, it's tempting for me to think of Christian maturity as an intellectual exercise. You're as mature as the things that you know. 
Right? For some of you, it's something else, right? Some of you are deeply passionate about missions. And you are tempted then to define Christian maturity by how much you're willing to sacrifice at any given moment for any particular people group. This is what we do. We, we define maturity by our strengths. But that's not what Paul is doing. Paul doesn't define maturity by how much we know or, or any particular skill set that we have or even how holy we are. Paul defines maturity as the, the, the cherishing of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how much those realities engulf the whole of who you are. That's how he's defining maturity. So then I ask you, Christian, do you treasure Jesus Christ? And has the gospel... In unambiguous terms, his perfect life, his atoning death, and his victorious resurrection actually engulfed every aspect of your life. That's Christian maturity. That's Christian maturity when we share in the death and share in the resurrection of Jesus. And then I love what he says. It's almost in a sarcastic way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Saying if you disagree, just wait. God will show you. So in our first paragraph then, Paul exhorts us to press into Christ, to make him our own because he's made us his own. And we see that what that means, pressing into Christ, is sharing in his death and resurrection and seeing that this news, the death and resurrection, engulfs the whole of who we are. What I love about what Paul has said us so far is it shows us the uniqueness of Christianity. Here's what I mean by that. We get some what's happened up by saying this, our goal is to press into the gospel, and our motivation is none other than the gospel. This is unique. Our goal is Jesus, and our motivation is Jesus. Our goal is the gospel, and our motivation is the gospel. Verse 17, second paragraph of our text. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Right now, some of us can read this and feel a, a bit of a, what? Seems a bit arrogant, don't you think? That's a bit pretentious when he says, all right, everyone, look at me and do what I'm doing. Right? It feels a bit pretentious, but hear me, it's beautiful. <clears throat> Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example. We in 21st century American Christianity need to hear this because we have a wicked, wicked tendency to privatize our faith. It's just me and Jesus. That's all that matters. Me and my relationship with Jesus. And hear me, that is not the Christianity of the Bible. The Christianity of the Bible is not individualistic. It's not self-centered. It's not concerned with only you and your relationship with Jesus. The, the, the Christianity of the Bible is in community. Right? We, we actually believe in this thing that we're doing called church. We think it's important for you. And, and hear this. This is, this is beautiful. Paul is saying, look, I know some of you don't love Jesus the way that you want to, so hear me, do this. Look around, find someone who is loving Jesus the way you want to, and follow them. Imitate what they're doing. He says, imitate me or any of the brothers and sisters who are doing it like this. Look to someone. And hear me, you should do that. Like, this is actual practical advice. You should, as a member of this church, find someone else who is also a member of this church and, and see, are they loving Jesus in a way that you would want to be loving Jesus? And if so, be around them. Get around them. 
Watch them. Observe how they love Jesus. Ask them, can you go to lunch with me? Maybe mentor me. Maybe can I get some time around you and help each other love Jesus better? And hear me, this is an aside. This probably isn't surprising to to some of you who would know me, but, but it's been vital in my Christian life not only to have men and women in my life who love Jesus better than I do and to watch what they're doing, but it's also been vital in my life to learn from dead saints. Right? We're not the beginning of the church. There's been literally thousands of years of faithful brothers and sisters who have gone before us and done this thing. And I think it's a shame for us to not lay hold of the blessing of church history. So I've looked to, 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 to men and women who, though they are no longer alive, they speak. Right? So Spurgeon has taught me that in all things find Christ and make Christ the anthem to which I'm marching. He's done that. Calvin has taught me that all theology should lead to the loving of people. That, that me as a pastor, my pastoral theology should lead to your life being benefited. B.B. Warfield has taught me that that not only is the gospel the start of my Christian faith, but it's the whole of my Christian faith. And that Christian maturity isn't moving beyond the gospel, it's moving deeper into the gospel. Herman Bovink has taught me to be mesmerized by God. Actually, like, breathtaking by how big and grand and beautiful he is. And he's taught me, along with many other theologians, that the life of the mind should lead to humility. That the more we think about Christ, the more humble we should be. I, I give you my, my Mount Rushmore of theologians, as it were, to, to show you you can learn from dead saints. We have a responsibility to, to know about our past. Right? Jesus has been up to something since the end of the New Testament in you. It's important to know what it is. So we join in imitating the, those brothers and sisters who have ran the race faithfully. Remember, Hebrews calls them our great great cloud of witnesses. And remember, we talked about how the wrong interpretation of the great cloud of witnesses is a self-centered interpretation which says, all of these dead saints are now watching me run the race. No. The great cloud of witnesses are those who we are looking towards as we run the race. They are our examples. So imitate faithful brothers and sisters. Verse 18. Keep marching. For many, he's going to juxtapose those faithful ones who you should follow now with the dogs. And he actually calls them dogs. 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So Paul juxtaposes those faithful servants with those who are enemies of the cross. And don't miss this. He's saying saying it with tears. Because for Paul, he knows the deep joy that comes as an implication of the cross. Yet he also knows the weight of the cross in terms of its destruction of its enemies. And he's writing with tears as some that they know and that he knows personally have become enemies of the cross. And remember, in, in, in verse 2 of chapter 3, look there. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Right? So he's already, been, he's already hinted at there being false teachers amongst the Philippian church. And here he is not going to speak highly of them. Their destruction is coming. 
And so while I was preparing this sermon, sitting in a coffee shop, the same table I always get, man, it like destroys me when I show up to this coffee shop, which is like my second home, and someone's sitting at my table. Oh. It's like, well, the gospel's not going forward today, so. <laughs> so while, I'm, while I was preparing this sermon, one of the things that I do when I write sermons is I try to read the text at least 20 times. Just read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Because so, what happens with the scriptures is the more you read it, the more things start to come out to you. And you're like, oh, man, I didn't see that the first 15 times I read that. But, but one particular time I remember reading it, and then it struck me. I couldn't shake the thought in my head that this is the very type of verse that makes the pastoral office so weighty. And what makes the pastoral office feel so heavy. Because the reality is, is there's a, there's a, there is a chance that those who find themselves in this room could very well one day, one day be considered enemies of the cross. Or those who, who come in here who aren't, aren't members could one day be enemies of the cross. And to, to think about that, you, you know here at this church, we're not fancy. We don't have gimmicks, right? You're sitting in uncomfortable chairs, and you probably will be until Jesus comes back because we're not going to spend money on comfortable chairs. <laughs> right? we're, we're, we're just not fancy here. We don't have gimmicks. We have the gospel. And, and so we make central, week in, week out, Christ and Him crucified, as if it's the only thing we know, for it's the only thing we want to know. And so for a church whose all in all is Jesus and Him crucified, the thought of some of you becoming enemies of that very message breaks my heart. And it reaffirms what we're doing. Week in, week out, Sunday after Sunday, Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified. If you get tired of hearing the same sermon, this probably isn't going to be the church for you. Christ and Him crucified is what we know. Christ and Him crucified is all we have. And hear me, it's a concern because can we be honest? There are many of those who, who and they're getting louder and louder and louder and, and bigger and bigger in number, the enemies of the cross. You can hear them all over. They're telling you not to concern yourself with Christ, but rather try to please God on your own efforts. They are telling you to put confidence and strength in that which you can muster up to get yourself the strength that you can muster up to, to white-knuckle your way through the Christian faith. They are telling you that what you have done in your past and who you were is far too depraved for God to save at this point. They are telling you that the Lord could never use someone so guilt and shame riddled like you to actually make an impact on the kingdom. They are telling you that holiness isn't important in the Christian life. They are telling you that a murdered son who lived a perfect life and drenched a cross with his blood on your behalf isn't enough. They're telling you lies, and they're enemies of the cross. And so I see it, we see it, honestly, as our job with this church, with, with pastoring this church, as nothing more than, than a delivery boy of sorts who promises, for as long as the Lord gives me breath, with every fiber of my being, I will take my members and deliver them to Jesus over and over and over, for he is the one who gives life. 
And so you can expect at this church. Because God forbid that anyone in this room be called an enemy of the cross. So Paul says to watch out for them. They're dogs. Right? And he says, he says their destruction, their, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. I think the word belly should be read there as appetite. Their appetite for wickedness. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But, right? It's not, it's not, uh, it's pretty frequent in the Bible that when you see that, it's a good sign. But, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. I love this line. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul ends our text with bringing us back to the comparison between those who are enemies of the cross and those who are seeking to make Christ their own. And he said about those who are doing that work of making Christ their own because he's already made us his own, that we are citizen, our citizenship is in heaven. He says that we are awaiting a Savior, Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies. This is important because he's bringing back up resurrection language. Remember that this in this passage is sharing in the death and sharing in the resurrection of Jesus. So he's bringing that back up. Sharing in the resurrection. He might not have obtained it yet, but he knows one day he will. One day, Jesus is coming back for his bride. One day, those dogs who are enemies of the cross will be dealt with. One day, we will fully share in the death of Jesus. And in so doing, we will see the death of our guilt. In the death of Jesus, when we share in it, we will see the death of our shame. In the death of Jesus, we will see the death of our frailty, the death of our shortcomings, the death of our tears, the death of, the death of our anxiety, our despair, our longing. They will all be put to death as we finally and fully share in the death of Jesus. Church, and don't forget your Jesus is coming back. Not only will we share in his death, but we will share, hallelujah, in his resurrection. Paul calls on that stunning reality to straighten our backbones, to strengthen our shaking knees, to put hope back in our hands. He's calling on this, this resurrection. And he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, which I love that he would call his hearers that. Do you, has, I don't have time to talk about the way we view each other, but this is it. Our joy and our crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul urges you, church, I urge you to press on towards Christ. Everything you have, forsake what's behind and go forward. Make him yours because he's already made you his. Go to him for the rest of your days. Go to him till he comes back makes all sad things untrue, and we share in His resurrection daily. Go to Him. Make Christ your own. Press into the Gospel and stand firm until He returns. Let's pray.
Jesus, you're very good. And what we want to do is we want to consistently, as one body and one voice at Emmaus Church, we want to say that you are worthy. Lord, you are worthy of our time. You are worthy of our families. You are worthy of our energy. You are worthy of our money. You are worthy of our talent and our ability. You are worthy to consume every area of your life. And I pray for every member here that over every area of their life, you would shout, mine. Lord, would you allow us to be the type of people who just dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. And so we couldn't even think about an area of our life in which the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus hasn't completely consumed. So reveal to us the areas of our life where the resurrection is making no difference. And allow us to repent. Then we move on, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, which is you. You are our prize and you are our hope. So may we press on into you. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Every week here at Emmaus, we end in communion. Uh, You heard me say that we don't have gimmicks, we have the gospel. And we want the gospel to be seen and heard as many times as humanly possible in one service. One way we can do that is making sure you have a visual sign of the gospel. And that's the breaking of bread and the dipping it in the juice. Right? We, we, We say here frequently that this is an act for believers. Right? So only if you are a believer and have put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus do we welcome you to the table. There's a reason why. One of the things we are completely opposed to is religion for religion's sake here. Hollow religious activities have nothing to do with a gospel life. And if you don't believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if you haven't put your faith in that, then coming to this table is a hollow religious activity that means nothing for you. And we don't want to be the ones administrating administrating that to you. So if you are a believer, we would ask you to come. If you are a non-believer, we would ask you, don't, don't come and take the table, but we invite you to take Jesus. Take him. He is the only hope. He will make you His. Take Him. Church, come take. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.